From Five Hairs New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Friday Vine Hair Podcast. Guess what's going on? Oh, oh. so nice to have that voice back. Telling me it's Friday. Mm-hmm. You already had it on Monday. Though. We talked <laughs> about Friday. Valentine's Day, you know? <laughs> now I'm back, like, for real. I mean, I guess we did it. We did it last week with Jake, but like it was that that episode was so frenetic because Jake is like such a high energy dude, which is Ooh, awesome. But I was like, this, this one is a little more like I'm entering the weekend. Like he's so great, cleanly. He's the mm-hmm. best. Mm-hmm. Great show, funny guy. <laughs> yeah, you know, I really respect. I love that story about how he would have a spoiled bottle of wine behind the oh bar for oh anyone that wanted it really natty. I'm just like, <laughs> come on. He's brilliant. It's just, it just proves that I think people who work in natural wine are trolling everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about all of them, really but undoubtedly at least some of them. Actually, we should write that article. Yeah. People who work in natural wine are just trolling everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Keith, you want to write it? I was going to say, what's yeah. Keith doing? He should definitely Keith will write it. Keith will totally write it. Uh, but so today we're, wa- we're talking about something else that feels kind of trolly. And that is, <laughs> <laughs> that is the, the, the fact that most breweries now have gone to this world of sort of spe- like special release drops, right? So it's almost mm-hmm. like the world of, you and, know, endless one offs. Right. Like, you know, it's almost like we're we're on complex or hype beast or something, right? And it's like it's all about the shoe drops, right? And mm-hmm. this is what's happening in the world of craft beer. And it's it's been happening for a while now, but it seems to be it's like such a fever pitch now that like you almost can't guarantee that the beer you have, you know, one week will even be there the next. You'll right. be able to buy it the next. There's just so much special release. And, you know, the question is like, is that good for craft beer? You know, mm-hmm. is that good for the consumer at the end of the day? Um, and I have some opinions here, obviously, mm-hmm. but I'm curious, uh, Zach, this was sort of something you proposed. So what do you think, man? Yeah. Well, so I've noticed this a lot, um, at the breweries in the Seattle area that I in particular kind of keep an eye on and frequent. And, and it's obviously then something that I've seen, um, kind of around the country. And it is interesting to me because as someone who got interested in craft beer, you know, kind of as I was uh, maturing as a drink or becoming uh, of drinking age in a very different era of craft beer, where it was really about the flagship beers. And it was kind of a big deal when one of these breweries, when a craft brewery would add a new beer to their lineup. I mean, there were definitely breweries in the Seattle area at that time, you know, 15 years ago that made like five beers and that was it. And they maybe made a seasonal beer, right? Like maybe there was one of, there was one beer that would rotate every few months, right? They'd Mm -hmm. have a dark beer in the winter. They'd have a, you know, a Pilsner or something in the summer. They'd have, you know, maybe be an Oktoberfest or a pumpkin beer or something like that in the fall. But like, but the idea that like you would walk into their tap room, that you would find their six packs or, or whatever, and it would always be the same beers was just, it was just a central piece of kind of what craft beer was at the time. And and now I go to some of these breweries, like we were just um, at a brewery uh, in our old neighborhood um, this past weekend. And it was amazing. Like all of the beers were with the exception of two and they had, you know, like 15 of them were special releases. They were, mm-hmm. they were perhaps one-offs, perhaps something that would come back at some point in the future. And it just was interesting to me because I was thinking about this and, and in proposing this as a topic for us to talk about, I wondered like, does it make it harder for those breweries to create sort of long-term relationships with drinkers or conversely? And, and I don't know, I'm open to the conversation and I'm not sure how I personally feel is that constant novelty actually what keeps people coming back in? They don't mm-hmm. feel like, oh, I've just, I've done that brewery. Now let's on, go on to the next one. Like, mm-hmm. do you need to have this constant innovation and change of, of your lineup to stay attractive to, to drinkers? I think that's an interesting question because what I, what I think of is like, which came first? Like people mm-hmm. going to, to breweries to kind of check off 
fears on their untapped or whatever to say like, oh, I went there and I had it and I don't plan to return kind of thing. And then so breweries pivoting to do this is an incentive for, for people to actually return um, to try something that they've never had before. Or, yeah, did breweries start doing this and then it kind of leads to people only going to only going there, you know, um, in, not having like return customers, I suppose, or people who are loyal to or who can return for specific beers because they like them. Yeah. I think it really depends on the brewery. Um, I think if you're a brewery that's become known for brewing lots of different things well, then maybe special release is interesting for you, right? Because like, oh, like I really want to try their new Pilsner or their new Porter or their mm-hmm. new whatever. The thing that for me as a consumer is tiring is like going to a brewery that's become known for hazy IPAs. And so this week is just another fucking hazy IPA that basically tastes the same under a different name with some mm-hmm. different hops. Yeah. That is where I'm, I'm wondering if there's going to be fatigue because they are a little bit different. And so what happens when I did, like, let's say I'm like, I'm a haze bro and I want to have. Let's say you're a haze bro. Yeah, like, let's, we know let's, you're a haze bro. In this wild hypothetical. <laughs> Look, put, nothing wrong with hazy IPAs, man. They're <laughs> delicious. Don't put me in a corner. <laughs> don't put me in a corner. I like my hazies, but don't you dare label me. Anyway, so I think the deal is that, yeah, like I don't need to go to this brewery to have seven different hazies that all kind of taste the same because then I'm like, well, what if I did discover one that I like and it's never going to be there again? That to me as a consumer is very frustrating. Mm, yeah, I, think, I get that. But I think also consumers have very short yes, attention, attention spans. spans. I, have an assortment, mm-hmm. I have a short attention span. Do you guys know that? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think, but it, I also do think it probably is just the state of craft beer that we're in because mm-hmm. the, the flagship, again, I really think only works at this point for brands that are trying to dominate a market or dominate a region or dominate or dominate the nation. Right. So like if you're saying, okay, here's the deal. I'm just going to take a brewery that I love. Right. So let's say threes. Mm -hmm. I think threes Mm -hmm. is the best. Mm -hmm. So threes has decided, right. That they're going to make a bunch of different special releases, but they are going to have two flagships, right. Vleet and, and a logical conclusion. Mm -hmm. And those two, beers they do really push into the new york metro area market like they're sure. they're going in saying this if you're going to have one pilsner on your draft line it should be fleet mm-hmm. right and so they're going to try to push out prima pills or whoever else is there to be the the pilsner on the draft line and then their sort of logical inclusion is is you know they're hazy ipa you can get almost anywhere yep that's i think a tactic if you are trying to be a a major regional player. You want to be a brewery that's kind of known throughout the region. Then, you know, once it becomes a, a, a even larger player, right, na- national or sort of the east east coast or west coast, right? Like then you're talking about thinking in the realm of a Sierra Nevada that's saying, okay, like we're going to really push into having hazy little thing and we're going to, you know, put marketing behind it and it's going to become, you know, the standard bearer for you know the country. Like if you want a hazy IPA from Sierra Nevada, this is what we think a hazy IPA should taste like, or this is what we think yeah. pale ale should taste like, which they've done forever. But then if you're like a smaller brewery, like a neighborhood brewery or a brewery up in the Catskills or whatever, I don't know, right? Mm-hmm. Then maybe the whole sort of rotator program works for you because it keeps your staff excited. It mm-hmm. keeps you as a brewer excited. It's, you know, as we talked about before, 
it's more of a lifestyle business at that point. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think that's what the majority of these now 6,000 breweries in the country are is lifestyle businesses. And so if it's a lifestyle business, you do want to continue to be innovating. You don't want to be brewing the same fucking five beers for the rest of your life. That sounds real boring. Mm-hmm. That's why winemakers continue to even experiment, rip up vines, pull vines down. Like, yeah, there's probably, they probably make one wine always, you know, especially in Italy. Like we make this Barolo. All the time. But as a terrible accent, I really apologize. Yeah, I don't know where that was. <laughs> I, was trying to, cool. I was trying to channel Keith. But uh, but anyways, so I think those were, you know, the, but everyone's always experimenting, right? Everyone's trying to make different things. So I kind of see it more in the regional world of why you would do it. The, so not the regional world, sorry, neighborhood world. Isn't like the on-premise a really big part of this conversation, though? Like They we, always want new-new. New-new, right. So you want people to come to your tap room exactly. or whatever. And if it's like people are f- familiar with your flagship because they were able to get it in their state, yeah. they're like, oh, I'm going to New York. I want to go to threes because I know that they're going to have a bunch of these interesting seasonal, whatever, limited releases that I can only get there. Yes. Like, I think that's a draw. I think that is. But I think the reason you go to threes is because they do still invest in, in that non-limited release, right? Mm-hmm. That right. that flagship. Whereas like some other breweries... Don't even do that. Don't or I mean, they could tell you they have a flagship, but like... I think most of their drinkers wouldn't know that's the one they think they're known for, right? It's Got just it. they they have an audience because they're the one really good brewery in Livingston Manor, mm-hmm. for example, right? And so they're going to do a bunch of different kinds of beers because they are up there and that's fun for them. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think it's important to differentiate here too that there's a there can be a couple of different um, sort of – motivations behind this kind of approach for a brewery. And and I think you hit on a couple of them, Adam, and maintaining (laughs) employee interest is an important piece of this. That's Mm -hmm. definitely true that like the problem with some flagship beers is they become just rote formulas and and no one making them cares that, I mean, they probably do a perfectly fine job, but there's nothing left to discover there. It's just about, you know, especially when you get to a certain size, you know, the, the remaining challenge as you grow as a brewery, it's like, how do you scale up recipes? And that can actually be trickier than you think. Um, because the ratios don't remain the same in larger, uh, in just larger formats and larger vessels, et cetera, the, the bigger the batches you're doing. But mm-hmm. I also think that part of it is just kind of like, you know, how do you keep your knit yourself kind of current in a landscape that is always changing, right? How do you have something cool, you know, some cool new can to put on Instagram, right? Like that, I think, is a big part of this that like for right. so many breweries, you cannot just, you know, we're, we're long past the era in craft beer where you could, I think, succeed in most levels of the industry, even the big side of it, right. but certainly the medium and small side, by just making the same things over and over again and counting on the quality of your beer to carry you. You, you need... A reason for people, especially in, you know, even in medium sized cities, to say nothing of big cities, you need people to reasons to come back um, to your tap house Mm -hmm. or tap room. You need reasons for people to seek out your beers on store shelves. Right. And you need reasons for people to. Um, request your beer, you know, in their local bars, et cetera, right? To ask, oh, what do you have from threes, you know, et cetera, right? Whatever, wherever you are, what do you have from, you know, here in Seattle, from from Rubens or from Fremont Brewing or whatever, right? And and those and the way you do that, I think, is is now is through this kind of novelty, through these innovations, through this mm-hmm. idea. And even if you're really just repackaging the same basic beer under a different label with a very slightly different formulation that most people wouldn't be able to really yeah. distinguish from your previous. Just having a new thing, I think, has become important. I also want to ask you guys a question on this in this vein, too, which is, I think, you know, connected, but isn't exactly the same, which is that, you know, 
when we think about these these changes that have come about, how much of it feels like it has been prompted in part? Because it, it feels strongly to me like it's been prompted or at least accelerated like many things by the pandemic and mm-hmm. this need for for breweries to um, to be able to kind of, again, keep people coming out even when yeah. it, it, it mm. might not – not that it was unsafe, but, you know, you were, you were fighting a, a larger, a more uphill battle – in summer 2020 or summer 2021 to get someone to come to your uh, to your brewery than you were in summer of 2019, like or, mm-hmm. or winter or fall or whatever, right? Even when you were all outside, I think there was, you had to give people novelty to bring them in. And I don't think at the same time, now that novelty is so crucial in this industry, I don't think it's going to like recede. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I, I definitely think that it accelerated this trend that we're seeing. And I, I do even remember when, you, even in the like, middle of the pandemic going to different breweries and picking up beers and feeling like that was an exciting and interesting thing to do. I also think like given the context of the conversation that we had with Dave Infante a few weeks ago about supply chain issues, like isn't this an effective way to utilize what's local and available as well? Like maybe you can't get that lychee that you're known for, for your IPA, but now you can actually get something else. So you have this limited release of like a blueberry or peach beer that you can use local fruit for. Right. Similar recipe is something you were known for, but you're playing with something else as as one of the ingredients. Yeah. Week to week. But so, so this, this trend is actually maybe beneficial to, to breweries because, um, they're less, you know, beholden to, the recipes that they're known for or yeah. something. I think, you know, I think it just, it's the nature of the beast at this point. And I think a lot of, a lot of it does come from the realization. A lot of breweries have had that you need to stay relevant and you need mm-hmm. to stay relevant in your community. And mm-hmm. that there's a lot, I think you see a lot less breweries who really are striving for that, like acquisition right yeah. or like pushing to say like we're going to become a national brand right. and yeah. i think because of that you're seeing less allagash whites mm-hmm. right people are like i'm going to perfect this and i'm just going to let this be you know allagash white is 70 percent, i think of allagash's sales or something mm-hmm. like that and hazy little thing for sierra nevada is is somewhere insane like that as well like mm-hmm. dogfish is similar like these more historic OG craft breweries makes sense. They have the flagships because that's how they became known. They were just trying to say, just drink one of our fucking beers, mm-hmm. right? Just drink one to 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 get you off of Bud Light. Now you have the the culture who's saying, well, now we know we like craft beer, so now like we want variety, we want fun, we want different, and yeah. so that's just sort of the nature of limited releases. I think is that people want to go to different breweries and experience different things. You don't want to keep going to the same brewery in your town. Or same three and only and always having the same three beers. Mm-hmm. But I feel like we're seeing this across beverage as well. Totally. Yeah. Well, and no one wants to be their brewery to feel stodgy, right? Yeah, no one exactly. wants the, the people in their community to say, "Oh, I've been there. I've had their beers. They don't. You know, I never need to go back." Know, right? Like yeah. they, they want you to keep coming back for something new over and over and over again. And that I think is a fundamental change in craft beer over the last half decade or so where like the the need to constantly be providing more options in part because competition has gotten more fierce there are there's a greater density of breweries in almost everywhere and you you just can't make the same beers over and over again and expect to remain relevant yeah so with that being said let's drink some limited release beer (laughs) so uh zach what do you have 
So I have from uh, Lucky Envelope Brewing, which is here in Seattle. I have their Yuzu Cold IPA. Yuzu Cold IPA. Pardon me, not IBA. I don't know what that would be. Um, and this <laughs> is like an IBS, like a, and I don't want to know. <laughs> no, I don't. Fortunately, not. I'm not drinking that. Uh, and this is a like a, um, a diuretic, a collaboration actually with another brewery, uh, Arbiter Be- Brewing in Minneapolis. Unclear to me Ooh. how these collabs work. I assume they just kind of work on a recipe together. Obviously, the beer doesn't get like brewed one place and shipped to the other. But no, sometimes um, the brewers will come together and brew together, and then they have a fun. But yes, so, sometimes it's just the recipe sex. That sounds really good, though, Zach. It does. Yes, actually. I'm going to open it up right now. It's kind of like it. Lucky Envelope. It's a good name. Mm. Yes, it, it's owned by um, a couple of um, guys of or of Chinese descent, rather. And so it's um, the, the whole kind of not that the entirety of that what they do is centered around their heritage but they do some really interesting things with um including some like ancient um like they found an old old recipe for like a chinese rice beer uh that they make Ooh. seasonally around uh, uh the lunar new year and they do a lot of things with um sort of chinese or east asian spices and fruits and stuff like that from time to time including of course this yuzu cold ipa so cool there we go we what do you guys have harpoon duncan midnight mm. uh their limited release uh, collaboration with Dunkin' Donuts. Mm-hmm. My goodness. From fall uh, of last year. <laughs> shh. <laughs> Why'd you have to say that? <laughs> I don't want people to think we don't know. Please pour that in. Yeah, we did see the can on date was 823-21, but it's fine. It's fine. This is more about the... the, the it's the idea. It's more about I mean, the if there's, I mean, talk about novelty, right? Yeah, Dunkin'. Mm-hmm. Hey, America runs on it. It does. Well, hold on. Smells like a stout. Yeah. It's called Dunkin' Midnight. (laughs) It doesn't say more. I feel like it should say Dunkin' Morning. I mean, I just don't understand. He's having Dunkin' at midnight. Nothing like a morning beer. Hold on. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. Yeah. Limited releases, guys. (laughs) Uh, How's yours, Zach? It's good. It definitely definitely has a little bit of that uh, distinctive Yuzu character, right? That kind of pithy, citrusy kind of vibe um, pairs nicely with the with the cold IPA style. It's uh, it's good. I mean, you know, again, I think one of the weird things too about some of these one offs is like I sometimes will buy, you know, you'll buy the the four pack of the. This is like a tall boy, so it's you know they came in I think a four pack of of sixteen ounces, mm-hmm. um, but like, you know, that is about enough of them for me most of the time. Like that's plenty. So probably, I'm not sure if I'll get through all four of these, honestly. Mm-hmm. So but, without, uh, not because there's anything wrong with them, just because I, you know, have so, only so much time to drink beer. Yeah. <laughs> Questions, Joanna, without mm-hmm. knowing. Sure. What from Duncan is in this beer? Like what ingredient? Oh yeah. my God, is it not? Coffee it is the coffee. <laughs> I just wanted you to be like the donuts. Oh, Adam! I was like, what else could be in here? This it could have been a coffee. It could have been like a donut stout, right? But it's the coffee. It's coffee. It's Dunkin' Coffee. Yeah. It tastes like Dunkin' Coffee. I mean, I like I said, I I could see people being people love Dunkin' Donuts. I could see people. What Harpoon is a is a Mass- Massachusetts brewery. It's right? a masshole beer. Yeah, exactly. So like, there's nothing. More mass holy than exactly. Harpoon Dunkin' Donuts beer, right? Exactly, so, totally. Is maybe the cat, like the does the can Patriots have a Red Sox hat on it? Oh, What's God. going on? What'd you say? So, does the can have like a Red Sox hat on it, or what? No, it's it's all Dunkin' colors, mm-hmm. though. 
Uh, no, as, as Joanna said, it would just be amazing if there was a Patriot there too. Like, yes. hey, or a Red, yeah, Red Sox. <laughs> just like, did the, did the can go to Brandeis? What's the deal? Uh, not no, another they, a different Boston. School. Yeah, it's a different. That's not even really Boston. <laughs> really, we're you know, <laughs> it's like outside. Anyways, this has been good, guys. Tell us about your uh, fam- favorite limited edition beers, or if you uh, run a yeah. brewery, let us know. Yeah, let us know. Hit us up at podcastdivinepair.com. We love hearing what you think. But before we go, we got a shout out today. Yeah, so as, as everyone who listens to Pod knows, we have a special email program that uh, if you tell enough of your friends about the Vine Pair newsletter and they sign up, uh, the VP Pro newsletter specifically, you then get a shout out on the podcast. Joanna, mm-hmm. uh, you want to? Yes, there's a special shout out to Gate Hospitality, the Landmark Clubs of North Florida, and Stephen Jones, the Vice President of Food and Beverage Operations. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah, thanks, Stephen, for telling your friends. Really appreciate it. Really love to have more readers of the site and listeners to the pod. So again, if you tell enough people, it could be you we're shouting out to. (laughs) And, uh, And with that, I will see you both on Monday. See you next week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.